0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about art and the strange bedfellows. the realm of the arts is the place that you are most likely to find a healthy confrontation of sex, religion, politics, and culture. At times in our history, this has been a safe haven for new ideas. At other times, it has been the last stronghold against totalitarian conformity. One of the best examples of this is our different drummer this week. More on that in a moment. For now, though, I want to talk about the arts from a wide variety of perspectives and dealing with this clash of what I've called before, and I'll call again, the strange bedfellows. The idea is that sex, politics, religion, these things should not meet. Well, the fact is, they do meet. And the more effective society is at keeping these things separated, the more effective the arts community becomes in bringing them together. Let me begin with a quick warning, though. Due to the name of one piece of art, and literally, I believe, just the name of one piece of art, this episode is going to have an explicit tag. So if you are not concerned about a slang term that is used to express the concept of urination, you're probably going to be pretty safe with this episode. However, it is one of the seven words that got George Carlin in trouble, so I'm going to apply that standard here. And actually, I may start off with exactly that one piece of art. Before I get there, though, the controversy over art seems to impact the visual arts more than any other. I want to call that out and sort of have that idea in our head a little bit as we work our way through a few examples. I've mentioned this in previous shows about the difference between Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, and the book, both of them expressing the same ideas, both ideas which might be viewed as controversial in some Christian circles. One of them led to violence, vandalism, protests, calls for changes in the way movies are made. I think at one point, The head of of that particular movie studio was asked to resign and step down. I don't recall any such controversy over the publication or republications of the original book. So you have this disparity where, for whatever reason, we appear to be unwilling to allow others to have different ideas, or even to provide different impressions on ideas, and nowhere is that clearer than the arts. In fact, let me start with photography and a 1987 photograph called Piss Christ by Andrus Serrano. As the story goes, the National Endowment for the Arts in the United States co-sponsored some of the funding for the artistic pro- project known as Piss Christ. In this, Serrano, the photographer, had allegedly submerged a crucifix inside a glass of his own urine and then took a picture through that sort of refracted light and then applied some photographic effects to sort of highlight what is essentially a view of the crucifix because it is a crucifix not just a cross um, in hues of red orange and yellow the piece created an incredible an incredible scandal that would later lead to the um, National Endowment for the Arts deciding that they can no longer fund individual works by individual artists we'll get to another another piece of that puzzle here in just a moment in this case I wanted to deal with the one that was particularly religious and not so much sexual but Trust me, religion and sex and a whole lot of politics were involved in those decisions. It is as if the method by which the photograph was created was more important than anything the photograph was supposed to be depicting. So this is one of these, I would I would acknowledge, a very gray area, perhaps a very thin yellow line, to make a, a bad pun, where it's very difficult for us to look at something and separate the art from the artist, separate the subject matter from the presentation, but a Catholic nun at the time, who Wikipedia cites as Wendy Beckett, I think speaks for me on this matter, when in an interview with Bill Moyers, she said that she was not sure she could regard this work as blasphemous, that instead to her it was more a statement on what we have done to Christ, that is, the way contemporary society has come to regard Christ and the values he represents. To me, that was every bit as valid an interpretation of this photograph as anything that poured evil motives or blasphemous intent into the creation of the art itself. Would I purchase and frame a picture of Piss Christ and hang it up in my office next to Calvary by Octavio Ocampo, more of an anamorphic sort of an artwork? Very doubtful that I would do that. However, there are some people who might look at my wall at this particular work by Ocampo and find it to me blasphemous, too. Sometimes Christians have a very narrow range of what's orthodox, as I tried to cover in the last couple of shows, just dealing straight with matter of belief, we need to be much more expansive in our notion of what is orthodox, that distance between what we must not do, what we must do, and uh, what we're allowed to do falling in between. So if I allow that piece of photography to speak on behalf of all visual arts, painting, sculpture, and so forth, in this particular notion of how the strange bedfellows of politics, sex, and religion mingle, let me allow a play, or more specifically, a piece of performance art, to speak for how we deal with um, with those kind of performing arts. And specifically, I want to talk about Karen Finley. Once again, if you doubt the idea that politics is mixed up with art in very significant ways, or if there's any notion of censorship and repression, or at least very aggressive decisions about what is a nation we are willing to fund and support, and what is a nation we would prefer to at least unfund, not fund, or strongly discourage in our local communities, you need to look no further than Karen Finley. Her theatrical pieces have been labeled obscene. Uh, She includes sexuality, descriptions of abuse, nudity. She talks a lot about disenfranchisement. She has been um, the kind of person who speaks on behalf of feminist causes and yet at the same time manages to antagonize feminists just as often as as everyone else. In her case she is known for being one of the nea4 these are four performance artists whose grants from the national endowment for the arts were vetoed in 1990 and uh, really created a lot of you know spectacle and publicity and controversy for conservative republican senator jesse helms who went on a mini campaign at that time over decency issues so again When it comes to the First Amendment in this country, we seem very willing to grant people the right to say things we disagree with as long as those things are distinctly and overtly political. It's as if some people believe that the First Amendment protects only the newspaper's opinion column, but not the entertainment section. It's as if the First Amendment applies only to presidential debates. I'm going to get to the idea of presidential debates in a lot more detail in the future, but for now it's enough to say – that I'm not even convinced that the debates are real political speech. And if you want to find real political speech, you're more likely to find it on a street corner or in a performance art production or on on the stage in a play than you are anywhere near what they might televise on C-SPAN. So in this case, Karen Finley had to do quite a bit of fighting, in fact, going to court, to try to secure her constitutional rights because it wasn't simply a question of whether, whether this artist is going to get funding for her work or not. The lawsuit dealt with that because the question of whether funding, granted, can then you know, be taken away later. But given Jesse Helms' rhetoric on the issue, and if you cornered Jesse Helms on the matter and asked for a definitive opinion from the perspective of censorship, I'm pretty sure he would have been willing to call on every community in his home state anyway to apply a community standards rule to ban her from performing anywhere near his home state. So it went a little bit deeper than just, I don't like what you're saying, and therefore I'm not going to fund it. It went much, much closer to, I don't like what you're saying, and therefore you don't have a right to say it. And perhaps hidden in there was this idea that you don't have a right to say it because it isn't protected by the Constitution. It's not protected by the Constitution because it's obscene or because it's not sufficiently political or because it's anti-American. It's, it's critical of some things that have happened either in our society or in our country, or in one individual's experience of family life. And that is what I find to be completely unacceptable. If you believe in America, you have to believe in America where people can say things that are controversial. If we only have an America where people only say and do the quote-unquote American things to say and do, you may have secured a brand new vision for your country. It's not the same country that our founding fathers handed to us. So from a play perspective, I'm going to cite... Karen Finley is an example, and I say that even though I've never seen her work, I've never been to a performance where she's taken her clothes off and poured chocolate sauce all over herself, and I don't own any of her albums, so I'm not familiar with the details or the, the lyrical quality of tracks like Tales of Taboo or Lick It. I'm just unfamiliar, I guess. Masters of
1: None. HJ from Masters of None, inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck,
0: except for art
1: and Mike and art totally dicks. Check us out at mastersofnunshow dot com.
0: I'm going to hit prose, short story, literature, I suppose, for want of a better word, and music at the same time. And part of the reason I want to do that is that the musician I want to talk about is Leonard Cohen, and uh, the lyrics to his songs are decidedly poetic. He is a very good storyteller, and he casts a vision that I think many would find to be extremely controversial. So I want to talk a little bit about Leonard Cohen, and at the same time, I want to talk about the new wave, not the new wave in America, but the new wave in France, and not necessarily new wave filmmaking. I want to instead talk about the new novel movement, because I think that when these concepts of of art interacting with political questions, social questions, sexual questions come together... It engages the population, engages the the person who's the consumer in ways that you just can't do by having a very sterile textbook classroom kind of conversation about these things. One of my favorite short stories of all time is by an author that I don't find to be entertaining. This is not somebody that you would think would be the author of stories that have been translated to screen on a somewhat consistent basis, particularly in the 1960s. And yet, there you go, maybe perhaps because of the the standard of international filmmaking in france and in other countries in the 1960s it does make some sense but he's not a person who's going to drive an intricate plot he doesn't get you deep into the into the details of interpersonal relations he tells stories in a very different way and the short story i'm referring to is is alan rob Grayer's short story the secret room and i was uh, working on a collaborative project with some friends this project actually hasn't come fully to uh, fully to fore yet and along the way, the idea was well, let's let's actually get in and dive into the details and do sort of a sort of an analysis of short stories. So instead of looking at uh, entire books from a book review perspective, or focusing instead on things we're more likely to be consumers of, truth be known, like music, like movies, we instead decided to do short stories and actually spend some time in a particular short story, talking about how that short story impacted us. So that project got a, a certain certain ways down the road, and I want to share that with you. But one of the things I will say before I play that audio clip is that it occurred to me early on when I was trying to explain my feelings toward the short story, The Secret Room, that has been wrapped up in many ways with the um, song, the title track, actually, of the album, The Future, by Leonard Cohen. Now, part of that is the obvious reference that Leonard Cohen seems to make in the first verse by talking about a secret room uh, and being lonely because he has no one else to torture. So it's kind of right there called out in the very beginning of his of his song. But I think all the way through the song, The Future, Cohen deals with some of the same issues. The disenfranchisement of man, uh, how disconnected we are from each other, how we no longer are able to read the cultural um, signs the way we used to. That as a, as a nation, perhaps even as a world, we've become biblically illiterate. And that's important even for people who are not Christians. I think that we need to, as a world community, Be familiar with the Bible, be familiar with the Quran, be familiar with the with the Upanishads, we need to know the cultural heritage and shared beliefs of large clusters of people throughout history. And if we can't read those signs anymore, then the future becomes very cloudy and very dark. And that's kind of what Cohen's referring to in his song. If you have never heard the song The Future by Leonard Cohen, it is well worth seeking out. If that means that you have to drop a dollar toward you know somebody like iTunes or Zoom to make it happen, I would think that it's probably worth the money because it's not a song that's going to jump about you as a pop track, it's too long. It's more lyrically laden than musically laden, so from an idea's perspective, it's more about the words than the music, and it's going to take you more than just a few listens to feel like you've got the gist of what he's saying. The same exact quality is true of our most challenging art. We have become very fast food consumers of everything, not just what we eat, but art as well. If we can't get it on the first take, if we don't understand it from the first viewing, if it's a four and a half five and a half page story that needs to be read several times to really explore the depths of it and and days after you've read it you're still walking around with the ideas in your head we for whatever reason seem to resent that we've become readers digest consumers of this kind of material we'd prefer the condensed version even of things that are very short if those short works are particularly challenging so let me take a break here for a second and bring on an essay on the secret room being read by a friend of mine named Kumar as part of this collaborative project. Again, a project that, in my mind, is still arguably underway. Here's The Secret Room.
1: Those are the opening lines to Leonard Cohen's 1992 song, The Future. The reference to Alain Crier's short story, The Secret Room, could be coincidental. It is nevertheless unmistakable. Describing what the narrator sees, the author could just as well be analyzing a series of strange photographs. This method is apparent in the title of the short story collection published in 1962. The English translation, its snapshots. Told almost in reverse, Rob Grier describes a bloodstain, a dead body, a torture victim in the throes of death, and elements of the torture itself. He focuses on things like the look of the room, the lines formed by the pattern of streaming blood, and stairs leading up and out he describes her naked and bound body, as if he didn't have any context for what arms or legs or breasts might otherwise do. While the author is acknowledged as a key member of the new novel movement in 1950s France, my first exposure to his work was the screenplay Last Year at Marienbad. Like his fiction, the 1961 film dangles over the edge of highbrow art, with very little plot or characterization to hold on to. It is both pretentious and a masterpiece. The Secret Room is from the same period. The narrator does not provide and may not know the answers to the questions raised in the story. Who is the man in the room? What is his relationship to the woman? If she is his victim as it appears, what led to this and why? The story is brilliant for its ambiguity. I have found myself referring to the secret room on many occasions, both in my life and while enjoying art. Films like Memento reminded me of the structure. Cube reminded me of these unanswered questions, at least for most of the movie. I hesitate to offer my own interpretation, not wanting to spoil the story or reveal too much of myself, to be honest. Suffice to say that there are times when I wonder if the way men objectify women doesn't subconsciously lead down these stairs. The woman becomes just a body, just parts, ultimately lifeless. Far from being twisted and mental, I think it's a healthy thing to ask whether anyone is chained to the floor of some secret room in my memory. If I don't take this story seriously enough and challenge myself, I can almost hear Leonard Cohen warning of a time when we won't even know how to apologize for the things we think. He wrote, When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. I recommend the short works of new novelists Alain Robbcriet and also Natalie Sachot. Their style poses a challenge. Plot devices are not to the point, and characters often have no names or backgrounds. For some, it makes the stories too distant. For me, it almost makes them too personal.
0: If you like food, and talking about food, then why not listen to
1: Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Lind? You can find us on SimplySyndicated.com or download through iTunes.
0: Thank you, Kumar. Those are my words again. So when it comes to the true confession, the idea that maybe in, in my head... There's still this idea that the way men treat women creates an objectivist standard, that we treat people like their body parts, treat people like their attributes, but not a whole person. You know, those aren't necessarily kumar's ideas i 've never gotten an email from him saying, "Hey, I strongly disagree with you but i'm i'm not going i'm not going to make him own the weight of my words it's enough that out of his generosity he was able to make that recording and The recording actually goes back a year or so. It was an inspirational moment for me where I sent him a, a copy of the essay, and what he sent back was uh, how quickly in his in this case very quickly, and well, something can be recorded and read you know for purposes that at the time I didn't even dream of. At the time, I had no concept I might be talking about art and the way the writings of someone like Rob Grier and Cohen could work together to change the way people look at the world and say, hey, you know what? Maybe the way I interact with women should be different than it is today. You know, there's this stereotypical notion of men that the first thing you think of when you hear the word lesbian is two women who are both naked at the same time. So you, you double your body parts that concept. That's the idea that this kind of literature is talking about. When Karen Finley takes off her clothes and drenches herself in chocolate, it's the same kind of concept she's trying to relay. Now, I'd be willing to grant that a lot of people might see her performance, something I, by the way, have never done, might see her performance and miss the point altogether. And you could easily read Roeb short story and miss the point altogether. But the fact that these artists are trying to find as many different ways of communicating important, challenging, and difficult concepts as possible is a good thing. It's the same message you hear when you're a teacher learning how to be a teacher. Children don't learn in the same way. Some people will hear your words and get it. Some some children will not get it unless you draw an example on the blackboard. Some children get almost nothing out of any part of the classroom experience and simply need to read the book themselves. The same idea. We have things that we need to convey to each other. We have challenging concepts that maybe we can address in a political conversation. Maybe the dialogue within our political spectrum gets the job done. Unfortunately, I would say more often than not, the political spectrum fails us and fails us miserably. And in that light, we're much better off if the artists at least take a shot at it. More often than not, I'd say they succeed, especially in the case of Leonard Cohen. Of all the people that I've mentioned so far, that's the artist. That I actually invest the most of my time in. I specify so far, though, because I haven't gotten to our different drummer yet. Our different drummer this week is the greatest director in the history of film as art. Wow, that is a bold statement. I have just called out a strongly worded and, frankly, strongly held opinion. That our different drummer this week is the greatest director in the history of film. He is Luis Bunuel. Let me share a few things about Bunuel before I start talking about specifics of his films. And I, I feel the need to say that I'm doing all this without notes. So I think you could take for granted that if I'm getting the years of the sequence of releases wrong, uh, you know, I apologize. I'm winging it a little bit. But I also feel comfortable winging it because I've invested that much in this particular man's contribution to the art of filmmaking. Luis Benwell is not the guy that you're going to look to to find the fanciest shot, the greatest camera angle, the longest take, the most jarring edit, the most seamless through line. That's not what he's about. He's a director, and as a director, he sees himself, or he saw himself, as the leader of a collaborative venture. Now, as the leader of a collaboration, he did have final say. But for working with some of the greatest cinematographers around, Sacha Vierni, later in his life, uh, Gabriel Figueroa, particularly when he was in Mexico, um, he really got a lot out of allowing those men to do their work. Essentially, the concept of saying, if you're working with incredibly gifted and talented people, one of the greatest things you can do as a creative leader is get out of the way. Let those people decide. Maybe the best place to put the camera. Maybe the best way to light the scene. Let them do their part. If you don't like it, tell them you don't like it. If you have a different idea, let them demonstrate to you why, the different, why your original thought may not be the best thought. It's not a matter of saying that you have elaborately storyboarded every single scene in a film, and therefore the next move is for the uh, cinematographer to do exactly what you said. If that, were the, if that were the point of it all, then we wouldn't think of film as a collaborative art as all, at all. Luis Benwell may be one of the most frustrating filmmakers in world cinema history. When you think of the classic era of world cinema, because he's obviously one of the, uh, the great auteurs. He's referred to anytime you read auteur theory, he shows up. He gets at least an honorable mention. But the problem that the auteurists have is that they want a director who's making all the decisions. They want somebody who's domineering, who sets a signature style, who does things only for the sake of saying, This is mine. As if they were, you know, a a loyal dog hiking a leg on the fire hydrant of the movie you're watching, making sure that they've marked their territory. Boonwell wasn't that way. Now, in some cases, there's some deficiencies in Boonwell's work. He is not just the director of some of the finest films ever made, he has made one of the worst movies ever made as well. And a lot of the blame, I I put not just to the fact that during the time that he was in Mexico, he had a very limited budget. Well, I put some of the blame there to the fact that he didn't get good performances from his actors and bunuel typically was not regarded as somebody who was going to get who was going to get an oscar winning performance out of his out of his actors occasionally he would get some very very strong performances but again like with the cinematographer bunuel was trusting the actor to bring that part of it to the fore he also collaborated with great screenwriters, so it would be wrong for me to cite too much credit toward um, Luis Manuel. He has written screenplays or collaborated on story ideas with characters in history uh, as far-ranging as um, Salvador Dali and Jean-Claude Carrier, so pretty a pretty good range in terms of a scriptwriter, scriptwriter later in his career, and a wildly surrealist painter at the beginning of his career. But... Let's dive into the movies just to get a sense of of why I think this guy not only is a fantastic different drummer, somebody who's inspirational, somebody who's different, somebody who cast a vision, somebody who wasn't going to be able to make Hollywood movies, even if he tried more likely than not, and therefore set his own path, kind of walked his own trail, but also a man who is uniquely gifted to speak into these questions of politics, sex, and religion. He was born in Spain, uh, began his career in France, and eventually ended up in Mexico, and In each one of those countries, you just cannot get away from the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, Bunuel always had trouble with organized religion, described himself as an atheist, but he always worded it with a smile. He said, I'm an atheist, thank God. (laughs) I refer to him as being anti-clerical. And I don't think there's anything necessarily unhealthy about having a solid distrust of a parochially oriented, organized church. I think you've got to be very careful when the rules don't come from Scripture anymore. And that certainly describes the church in the uh, pre-Franco and Franco eras of Spain, the church in France at the time that Luis Bunuel was there, at the beginning of the Surrealist Movement. And, you know, in some ways, you can make the same argument for a lot of North America as well. Bunuel collaborated with Dalí for the first film that they made together, Un Chin Andalou, An Andalusian Dog. It is a silent movie classic, perhaps the best silent film ever made a film that is by far beyond description, so I won't try to describe it. The second film, which marked a falling out between the two men, uh, with Dali going his way and Buñuel going on to make his first talking film, L'Age d'Or. Both these films, Golden Age in particular, were financed in part by you know, representatives of the aristocracy in France, and one family got into such hot water that the, uh, the movie Golden Age was banned in France for something like 50, 60 years uh, disappearing from public distribution. a uh, Scandalous outrage is is how it was described. And I mentioned really early on in, in this program, one of the very early episodes, that Luis Manuel is one of two directors who is on two Vatican lists at the same time. He has made a film, Lodge Door, Golden Age, which is banned. Uh, the Catholic Church views it as a film that no Catholic should ever see. And he also is the director of Nazarene, which is a film that the you know, last I saw I made the list of the films that the Vatican said every Catholic should see. What made Lajador so controversial? Probably the last ten minutes, not that there wasn't plenty to object to along the way, but in the last ten minutes, um Boonwell interposes Jesus Christ with Marquis de Sad and sort of blends the two into a single character and using a visual depiction of Christ talks about the crimes of Marquis de Sade, and blends the two together in an intentional effort, an intentional gesture to outrage the organized hierarchical society of the Roman Catholic Church in France at the time. Because the number one goal of both the Surreal and Dadaist movements in Paris during that time was to create outrage, was to spark dialogue. If you can't create conversation, then at least get people screaming at each other. And in Bunuel's case, his first two films did that brilliantly. He briefly retreated to Spain and made a documentary, and then during World War II spent time in the United States of America, where he helped edit what can only be described as American propaganda films, viewing films coming from Germany and seeing what Germans were doing with their propaganda efforts, films like Triumph of the Will by Leni Reifenstahl, and then viewing the footage and and some of the films that were being made by people like Frank Capra, and trying to work in a way to help support the anti-fascists, because well, in, in this modern age, we might look back at somebody like Bunuel and say, well, he was just a communist. That makes him a bad guy. That makes him one of them. The truth is, Bunuel was standing with the United States government and the United States film industry, heel to heel, trying to fight against what at the time was a much greater enemy, the opposite side of the political spectrum, the fascists, particularly Hitler, but not just from a German perspective. He also was standing up to the totalitarianism represented by Japan, and he also was standing up, perhaps more than, more than anything else, standing up to Franco in his own country, who had a similar sort of right-wing totalitarian ideology. Unfortunately, things did not work for Bunuel, because in the United States of America, at that time in particular, being an atheist, being a communist, did not qualify you, for, for certainly not for service in the United States government. This is pre-McCarthyism, but the seeds were definitely there. So Bunuel ended up spending most of the rest of his creative life living in Mexico, and creating films in the Mexican film industry. You can imagine what this would do to your budgets. You can imagine what this can do to your access to scripts and to actors and to actresses. He latched on early on to a very good cinematographer, which was important, because as I've mentioned, Bunuel doesn't pretend to be all of those roles. He's not, in my opinion, one of the greatest directors of all time, if not the greatest director of all time, because he was in any position to take over the camera work and take over the editing work and be the best boy and be the key grip, Being a director is not about being the person who's doing all those jobs incredibly well. It's about being the person who is managing the people doing those jobs incredibly well. And in Benwell's case, he had to do these things on a very, very tight budget. The other problem that Benwell had is after two very serious, critically acclaimed, but highly controversial films, films that were as much a statement of revolution as they were uh, a statement of drama, he ultimately ended up in Mexico, where what he was filming instead were, you know, the popular tastes of the day. Uh, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that during this time, Bunuel directed not just melodramas, but also comedies and musicals. The musical is, is the slight stretch. I consider Grand Casino to be more of, a, more of a melodrama, but it's a melodrama that has some music in it as well. The Great Madcap is a comedy, and really not at all a bad one when you consider that it was his, really his second film made during this Mexican era. But he would essentially function below the radar, well below the radar, until 1950. So you're talking about a difference of 1930 to 1950, um, the distance between Lajador and Los Alvidados. Los Alvidados, using that documentary style that he demonstrated when he made the one film, uh, Land Without Bread, Los Hurtos, in Mexico, but instead bringing that documentary style to a dramatic, or perhaps even a melodramatic script, shooting on the streets. So... Again, picking up some of the things that he saw and that he found inspiring from the Italians, like Vittorio De Sica, in that neorealist style, and telling a story with only a few surrealist touches. In my mind, it's dismissive of Bunuel to refer to him as a surrealist director. His greatest and best-known films are surrealist films, beyond any doubt, Uh, Unchin Andalou being key among them, and at the end of his life, uh, he had a string of five or six in a row that were undoubtedly surrealist films. But he didn't function exclusively in that vein. The reason that people feel comfortable calling him a surrealist director and sort of pigeonholing him in that respect is that he did have surrealist touches throughout, even in this uh, era of Mexican cinema, where theoretically he was supposed to be getting a return on investment for his producers by making films that would appeal to the popular tastes of a wide-ranging audience. Some of my other favorites from Bunuel during this Mexican period, well, first, my least favorite, Una Mujer Sin Amor, A Woman Without Love, perhaps the worst film, uh, one of the worst films I've ever seen, and definitely the worst film that's been well ever made. Made during this period, straight-up melodrama, um, you know, woman you know, with a skeleton in her closet uh, trying to keep her family together. Um, it's a plot line that we've seen later in soap operas and, frankly, belongs there. Illusion Travels by Streetcar is an underregarded film in my mind, and a very good one. Um, two engineers are being told that the streetcar that they maintain and operate is being decommissioned, and sort of as a... As a uh, gesture of protest, or a bit of a sentimental joyride, they take it out for one more spin, unauthorized, and end up picking up more people than they ever might imagine, and more than a little bit of uh, comedy and drama along the way, Illusion Travels by Streetcar. Nowhere near as surrealist as the film's title might make it suggest, and if I'm recalling correctly, the title given to the movie was one of the things that Benwell was unhappy about nazarin also comes from this period near the end of this period as a matter of fact and uh it was again a serious film diary of a country priest for one of a better description and again profoundly moving the catholic church didn't get the quality of that film wrong at all later in his career bunuel starting you know not long after the turn of the 1960s returned to spain franco was still around the same uh, totalitarian rules uh, were there from the regime There was a lot of tight controls on what he could do. And yet somehow, in the midst of all of that, he was able to shoot the film Viridiana. Viridiana essentially depicts an aspiring nun being told that she needs to leave her training and leave the convent to go take care of a rich uncle who is ill. But that rich uncle has more sexual designs for the young woman, and intrigue develops from there. This was another one of the films that the church viewed as very controversial, because along the way, some of the events that occur is that Viridiana, still wanting to do God's will, wanting to be faithful to what she felt was her call to be a nun, invited the homeless into the the opulent, wealthy family home. But while she was called away to take care of some business, the meal that was being served for these people turned into a food fight and a riot, property damage, pilfering the whole nine yards. But at one moment of sanity in the midst of all this chaos, the beggars, the homeless people, do stop to pose in a recreation of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Again, Manuel, well, having fun, poking poking the bear a little bit, and asking in my mind the question, which one is truly sacred? The account in the Bible, which was in no way harmed by this, this image on film, or uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting? The lampooning was more lampooning toward da Vinci, then lampooning toward Jesus Christ. And yet you would think from the uproar surrounding the aftermath of that movie's release, you'd think that Spain had felt that it was the most blasphemous movie ever made. It was the last movie that Bunuel would make in Spain. Because I personally have such a focus about religion, I may have soft peddled some of the political content that are in his movies. Los Alvidados, by going into the streets, makes a great call for social justice illusion travels by streetcar has as its underpinning an economic question that it raises about employment, full employment, unemployment, mass transit. But it's really the religious element that appeals to me most in Bunuel's films. And that's really saying something because from my statements of belief, which I've shared quite freely, you wouldn't think that um, Bunuel's films would have a lot to offer me. But even where I disagree with the art that's being presented to me, it doesn't change the fact that I can be massively impressed by the manner in which that communication was done. Art has a quality in and of itself, even if I agree or disagree with what's being presented. In Boone case… He asks very provocative questions, and I think I would rather be involved in a conversation where provocative questions are being asked than to live in a society where none of those questions are allowed to be asked. There's a fear hidden in the idea that no one's allowed to raise questions about whether Simon the Stylite was truly a saint or not, and that fear is not about faith at all. Where there is that fear, there is no room for faith. Movies like Simon of the Desert suggest... That Simon, despite perhaps personally being incredibly pious, was ultimately ineffective. And Bunuel makes the argument that had he been as effective as he intended to be, our society wouldn't look like it does today. We wouldn't be in the quote-unquote state we're in. Uh, In the movie Simon of the Desert, uh, Satan herself shows him this. Uh, After her uh, striptease efforts were ineffective in shaking his faith, she translocates him to what was then modern New York City and uh, got a chance to see just exactly the impact. The argument is that he was getting to see the impact of his work, and the impact of his work was left wanting. This could become the longest program in the history of inappropriate conversations if I continue speaking about Bunuel's films. Picking up with uh, Belle de Jour, a couple of movies after Simon of the Desert, and in the era when he was making films in color in Europe with a, with a real budget— And with Carrier helping him with the script writing, you get a series of films that are just absolutely fantastic. Um, If you read the plot elements of Belle du Jour, you will not get any sense of how great this film truly is. The storyline is in and of itself a cliché. If it wasn't a cliché then, it is certainly a cliché now. It reads like any of the soft core sort of adult-oriented movies that you see made for cable TV all the time these days, with a wife moonlighting as a prostitute. From there, he did... um, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which won the Academy Award um, for Best Foreign Film. Milky Way, which is a film where almost every single scene depicts a different heresy, and the goal was to take the viewer on a journey, on a pilgrimage. It's a road movie, but instead of being a road movie through place, it's almost a road movie through time, where the landscape is the depiction of one Christian heresy after another in a fairly non-judgmental way. It's not like Bunuel is offering these things up and saying, these guys were right and orthodox Christianity is wrong. And it's not like he's lifting them up and and playing a straw man argument where he's, he's showing you the heresy and then gunning them down. He is simply showing you what two characters wandering through both place and time experience. Very interesting film. His last movie that he made was That Obscure Object of Desire. And in this film... For whatever reason, he chose to cast two completely different actresses who don't really even look that much like each other in the same role. So as the principal character is interacting with a woman that he's pursuing sexually and trying to figure out what it means for her to also be engaging in uh, what we might call terrorist activities today, two different actresses alternate the part throughout the film in a way that is initially disconcerting and more than a little bit funny and then later becomes strikingly invisible, oddly invisible to us. It's, a again, whether you call it a surrealist joke that he was playing on the audience in a film that has relatively few surrealist touches and that obscure object of desire, or whether there was a greater point that he was making that was subtle enough that it's not exactly obvious. My favorite film by Luis Manuel, and the one that I would recommend to anybody who wants to see a big-budget color uh, filmed in France, you know, a a quote-unquote good quality movie. If you're not ready to sort of grant Bunuel the benefit of the doubt and dive into something made in Mexico where you have to kind of forgive the quality of film stock available and the quality of locations available to me, if you want to see the man sort of at the pinnacle of his powers, it says next to the last film that I, I rate the most highly, the Phantom of Liberty. In fact, I believe that if you bookend Un Andalu with the Phantom of Liberty, in each case, you get a film that is almost narratively nonsensical. Filled with striking visual imagery, and in the case of the later film, The Phantom of Liberty, a lot of very good word and visual puns to go along with it. It is, for me, the most entertaining of his films, and one of the most entertaining films ever made. It's not a movie to go to if what you want is snappy, incredible editing with... Unbelievable jump cuts. It's not a movie to go to if you're looking for Sasha Vierney at the height of his powers. You're going to do better looking at the visual composition of uh, films by director Peter Greenaway if you want to see what that particular cinematographer is capable of. But what you will see is a high quality presentation of one surrealist joke after another, and um, very entertaining and well worth the time. The last story I'll share about Buñuel to give you a sense of how can you be a serious artist without being so overwhelmingly serious. Now, I'm not going to try to point any fingers at some of the greatest directors working today from countries like Germany and Russia. I probably tipped my hand enough. You know who I'm talking about. You don't have to be serious to be regarded seriously. Bunuel was asked before the Oscar ceremony, but after the Oscar nominations, in an interview in Mexico City, whether he thought the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie would win him his first Oscar. And Bunuel, with a smile on his face that apparently the reporter did not pick up or interpret properly, uh, said, of course, uh, I paid my money in advance. The Americans, for all their bad qualities, they're honest people. If you bribe them, you'll get what you want. Um, apparently, his, his response at having, quote unquote, bought the Oscar was so scandalous that he was uh, forced by the, the producer flew overseas from France to Mexico. He was forced to make public statements of apology, issue a retraction. It turned into a, a great scandal. And that scandal subsided only around the time that the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie won Best Foreign Film that particular year. It is that sort of prank. It is that sort of impish quality that when you attach it to a film that is overtly political, a film that basically says that what we would call the quote-unquote ruling class or the upper middle class and beyond is responsible for what's wrong with our society and that there's not a darn thing we can do to fix it that they are essentially an unstoppable force oblivious to their own negative qualities and yet leading us down a path toward if not destruction at least leading us down a path toward a looping never-ending pattern of repeating the same mistakes again and again he makes that argument against the clergy against the pol- the politicians against the military, and does so with so much more humor than Pasolini could ever develop in all of his efforts through the 70s. Bunuel made it look effortless, and sometimes I think that's what great art should do. have terms that we use, uh, expressions like strange bedfellows, I'm hoping that it means that uh, that it should be a little bit fun, that there ought to be some sort of playfulness or at least a relaxed quality to it. And if there's one thing about the arts that I think that is is missing, especially in America today, if you look at these scandals over the Piss Christ photograph, over almost anything that Karen Finley ever released, when you look at, you know, sort of the the way we completely ignore some of the more provocative works of art being produced by musicians like Leonard Cohen and poets like Leonard Cohen and uh, writers like Alain Robegrier, who also wrote the screenplay for last year *Marion Bad*. When we, when we wall ourselves off from all this stuff, we take the fun out of it. And if anything else, the one thing I see missing, the one thing that you don't necessarily experience on your typical trip to a museum is fun. We need to put the fun back into our art i'm going to hit this topic again from a slightly different angle next week next time we're going to take another look at the arts and we're going to do so starting off anyway with a poem that is deeply rooted in physics in the meantime if you'd like to add some dialogue to this conversation i can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com and the website for this program is inappropriate conversations.podbean.com thanks for listening loud.